Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and I'm so glad we're getting to have these hours together. It's already Tuesday, and Rob Blue is going to be joining me in just a minute. Dr. Alex McFarland is going to come on the program after Rob, and then a full hour with Jeff Verdorn as we continue our series in the beginning. And if you missed any of that, you always want to go to the beginning of In the Beginning. So don't want to miss a thing. Rob Blue is the executive editor of The Daily Signal. Rob, welcome. Thanks, Bill, and glad to be back with you today. Oh, I always uh, appreciate having you on, and I'm looking forward to uh, uh, talking to you today. And I also want to just let listeners know uh, you always have questions about what's going on in the world and what's going on in Washington, and uh, whether you uh, have a question that comes up in this half hour or not, you can always let me know what questions you might have for Rob. You can send them over to 877-933-2484, uh, Rob, we might as well start with uh, the guy who's in the news more than anyone right now, which would be Elon Musk, buying Twitter. That's right. Wow. What uh, big news and, and hopefully <laughs> an encouraging development for those of us who use Twitter as a regular basis to, to have conversations or track the news. Uh, increasingly, as your listeners will know, Bill, it has become a platform that is really synonymous with censorship because uh, Christians or conservatives who mm-hmm. want to share their views and perspectives about uh, things as basic as biological males and females find themselves locked out, suspended, their content removed. And Elon Musk, I think, uh, has had enough of that. In fact, it was uh, partially, I think, because of what happened to the Babylon Bee and giving a uh, satirically giving an award, the uh, the Man of the Year award to, to Rachel Levine, who is a biological male serving in the Biden administration, that uh, that prompted Musk to perhaps uh, decide to go down this route. Uh, so, you know, we don't know uh, fully what Elon Musk's policies will be as the, uh, the new leader of Twitter, but everything he is saying so far on the platform about free speech uh, should be welcomed uh, and encouraged because we need more of that, not less. Not surprised to see some pushback from uh, people saying this is a disaster. And I think, well, how is free speech ever going to be a disaster? Well, and and the European Union has apparently said that Musk must comply with all of uh, his uh, all of the EU's uh, requirements for content moderation. Well, content moderation is just another term used for censorship. So uh, you will see, I think, not only individuals upset that he's not taking a more aggressive stance to to perhaps ban people or or censor content. But uh, I think you're also going to see perhaps some governments try to step in and put the pressure on him. So it's not going to be easy for Musk uh, to balance both of these uh, demands. But I think that if he if he settles on uh, just the, the concept of freedom of speech, those those words that are written in our First Amendment here in the United States, uh, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, he will find himself in a position where it is more defensible than trying to navigate this this world that seems like it's constantly changing. One day it's okay to say something, and the next day it's not. And even those on the left side of the spectrum, I would hope, uh, would would continue to use the platform and debate. Uh, We need more conversation and debate in this country and not less. 
Yeah, I mean, we shouldn't be threatened by debate. Debate is important, and when we stop debate, then that's that's when we have problems, right? It sure is. And, and Bill, I think another interesting aspect of this is to see what some of the competitors do. Uh, Will Facebook start to uh, change its practices? Mm. Of course, uh, Facebook and YouTube and and, and LinkedIn and, and a whole host of other platforms have become more and more assertive in their uh, their quest to to control content on the platforms. Uh, some of this was in reaction to President Trump's victory in 2016, uh, when many people on the left pointed to the social media platforms as a way that individuals were able to organize and, and share news and information. Uh, they didn't necessarily like uh, the content that they were sharing, and so they wanted a crackdown on that. I think that that's unfortunate. Um, it, wor- it certainly worked to their advantage, <laughs> at least in the Democratic Party, when Barack Obama was elected in 2008 and 2012. He effectively used social media to get his message out. It just so happened that when President Trump was doing the same, uh, the results were different. Uh, they decided to really ratchet things up. And, and I, I have seen this firsthand at the Heritage Foundation and at the Daily Signal where our content is increasingly uh, blocked, and and Bill, it is. Uh, It it frankly comes down to a lot of these issues when uh, gender ideology, uh, on COVID, uh, misinformation, they call it, and uh, and the fact that uh, some of the things that that we publish just don't conform with uh, with their their perspective on the world, frankly. Yeah. Rob, how how is this all going to sort out? You know, what they would say is misinformation and they're banning you. Then when it turns out to be true, uh, then what? Well, and, and COVID is a, is a great example of that because so many of the things that they did ban early on turned out to be true or at least much more plausible. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's, take, let's take the origin of, of COVID. Remember in the early days, uh, there were individuals who said this very well could come from a, a Chinese laboratory mm-hmm. and we need to you know, take that seriously and look into this and investigate it. Um, and they said, no, 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 no. It, you know, it, it came from pangolins or bats or, you know, some sort of animal. There were a whole variety of other uh, uh, reasons that they pointed to. Well, you know, as it turns out, I mean, it, it seems plausible now based on some own independent investigations and our own intelligence community that uh, the Chinese very well may have been developing this in the lab. And it, and it unfortunately got out, and you know, has wreaked havoc on the entire world. So, uh, Bill, that's just one example of many of uh, things that later become true, and that's why I think to empower people in Silicon Valley to make these decisions is is just not right. It doesn't feel right, and I think that that's why Elon Musk is saying, "Hey, let's take a step back here. The way we're approaching this is is not the the, the right approach for America." And Bill, one final point on this. Because these are American companies, but mm-hmm. they have adopted global standards. Uh, and, and I think that that's unfortunate because, frankly, you know, while there are many great countries in the world, I mean, I would, love, I, would, I would pick none of them over the United States in terms of the place where I want to live because of the rights and freedoms that we have here. And so I think these companies, when they get pressure from the European Union or other places, uh, they should push back on that and they should uh, adhere to the American standard. And uh, first and foremost, that it means free speech. Mm-hmm. When Elon Musk talks about exposing the algorithms and making them more transparent, w- what might we learn? Well, this is really important. This is in complete alignment with uh, the recommendations we've made at the Heritage Foundation uh, about uh, about coming forward and, and being more transparent. So uh, just to Basic definition, an algorithm is the, the, the code, the software that they use at places like Twitter or Facebook to determine what you see when you log on to the platform. And so essentially years ago, I'll give you an example that's very near and dear to my heart. 
at the Daily Signal, which we, when we launched in 2014, we received about 75% of all traffic coming to the site from Facebook. It was a huge driver of traffic day in and day out. Facebook decided to tweak what its own users would see in their news feed. Mm. And so now when you log into Facebook, chances are you're going to see posts from your friends and family more so than the Daily Signal, unless you have, have gone in and manually uh, selected the Daily Signal as a place that you want to continue to get news from. And I encourage your listeners to do that. <laughs> Twitter is the same way. Uh, the information that you see is determined by an algorithm based on what they think you, you want to engage with. Conservatives and Christians have long complained that they are being discriminated against by these platforms because they are showing them content that aligns with their views in Silicon Valley, not the views that you and I may hold, Bill. And so that is what the algorithm is. By Musk saying that we need to be transparent about it, what he's essentially saying is let's tell the public what it is we're doing behind the scenes so that they will hopefully regain the trust in our company and not be so suspicious about, about everything we do. I've already seen, just anecdotally, a report that conservatives in the last just 24 hours have seen their follower counts increase, the number of uh, interactions and engagements on their posts, Twitter posts increase. So maybe something's going on behind the scenes at Twitter already. I don't know that they move that quickly, but hopefully it's an encouraging sign, and we'll see, uh, we'll see more of this in the future. And then what about validating who is on Twitter? Because right now I have 1.7 million followers, but it's really only three of my friends. <laughs> well, this is a big problem, and I remember a story from Dana Perino, the Fox News host, uh, who said years ago, uh, it was incredible, uh, the number of bots yeah. uh, that, uh, that, that just are on the platform, and really, um, you, you might not be able to distinguish between them and an authentic account or a, an authentic person, and they can wreak havoc on you. I mean, let's face it, uh, they, they are set to do malicious things and, and really, you know, uh, probably try to drag you down. And, 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 you know, it's not a good situation that Twitter finds itself in because they have made it relatively easy uh, to, to get access and create these accounts, these fake accounts. So one of the things that Musk is going to have to figure out how to do is to authenticate and, and make sure that, you know, when somebody signs up for an account, it's an actual real person who's, who's behind that account. I think that it's something technologically we can figure out. And hopefully when we reduce the number of bots, it'll be a better experience for everybody. Because, Bill, we have to remember that, after all, we are, we are people who have emotions. And when we engage with social media, uh, it, it affects our ability to, to function. And particularly in the studies that have come out on uh, uh, teenage girls and, and young boys, I mean, these can have life-changing consequences uh, on individuals and their self-image. I if you look at platforms like Instagram and, and how young girls are addicted to it and, and the body images that they see on, on Instagram and then trying to mimic that in their own life. And so there are very real consequences to what's going on on social media. And I think that we need to take that into account. I think that's why parents need to be very vigilant um, mm -hmm. and make sure that, you know, they're comfortable with what their kids are doing and making sure that they know what their kids are doing uh, before it's too late. Yeah, Rob, I've said many times that, we create technology, then it turns around and recreates us. And you think of the the person who is uh, checking their phone, uh, picking it up over and over to see if someone has replied to their text or their email, and they grow more and more anxious waiting for a response. And that creates a certain amount of nervousness and anxiety in people that didn't previously uh, exist. It, it, it certainly, yes, you're, you're absolutely, absolutely correct on that. And 
Bill, as, as great as these social media platforms have been, I think, for Faith Radio, for the Heritage Foundation, the Daily Signal, those of us who may have you know, struggled to get our message out to a broader audience uh, prior to social media companies, I mean, certainly we can reach far more people today than we ever were able to in the past. But there are some trade-offs with that. And right. I, I do sometimes long for the days um, pre-Facebook, pre-Twitter, mm-hmm. when uh, the world seemed like a simpler place. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't necessarily have uh, some of these things. I've had friends of mine uh, tell me that they've deleted their Facebook account or they've, they've, they've abandoned Twitter because they can't take the toxic environment that, uh, that, they, that they encounter. And it's just better to be off of those platforms entirely. So, you know, some people have decided to take that step. Um, I'm not there yet in part because <laughs> it's my job to right. be on there. But some days I certainly think about it. Yeah. Rob Louie is my guest, executive editor at The Daily Signal. If you have a question for Rob, let me know what it is. You can text it over 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. <laughs> walk-up music that belongs to rob bluey the executive editor at the daily signal and rob when i um during the break i was thinking about title 42 and is that going to be lifted and what what is that exactly Uh, explain that to us if you would sure well it's important for for your listeners to to understand uh what's at play here so in 2020 uh back when president trump was in office and the pandemic was in its early stages uh, the CDC put in place Title 42, which basically said that if you have COVID or you're sick, you can't come into the United States from a, a foreign country. And so uh, as it particularly pertains to the southern border, where we've had this border crisis now for a number of years, but it's accelerated to a, to a point where we're now seeing a record in unprecedented numbers, um, it is, uh, it is come to, it, it's coming up on its expiration date on May 23rd. And so the Biden administration has indicated that it will not renew or extend Title 42, which has led to a situation where there are now apparently illegal immigrants who are gathering in in Mexico and ready to cross into the country as soon as that day happens. Uh, This could double or even even more than double the number of of people who are coming into our country illegally, uh, going from something like 8,000 gotaways uh, every every. Uh, day to 18,000, so a huge increase. And it, primarily it means that the United States is unable to deport these individuals um, because, because of COVID or, or other um, illnesses that they, they might have. And so not only does it present a, a, a health threat to, to our country because you might have people who are carrying the virus into the United States, um, but it's also going to exacerbate the problem associated with illegal immigration. And that's uh, that's essentially what it is. And May 23rd is the date that uh, that, that we're looking at and why uh, I think things are so imminent right now, because we're now less than a month away uh, from that happening, Bill. Mm-hmm. Rob, when you uh, go through the news on an everyday basis, do you uh, have a, a story or two every day that really gets your attention? I guess it was maybe yesterday I was reading that um, black crime is up 33 percent 
since they started the George Floyd uh, defund the police campaign. And I thought the BLM movement got real quiet real fast about that. Well, not only that, Bill, but I'll tell you a story that caught my attention yesterday. It was the increase in gun ownership among uh, minorities. In the United States. So, uh, so uh, black Americans, uh, uh, Latinos and Hispanics and I think Asian Americans were the three, uh, the three demographic categories that were cited. And I'm talking like significantly. I think the numbers range from anywhere from like 30 upwards to 50 percent for each of those groups. And they indicated that part of the reason for this is the defund the police movement. Um, all of these groups, uh, like, for instance, uh, if you are, are in a community or you feel unsafe and you see activists and city leaders coming in and saying, we're going to take resources away from police and redirect them to social services, uh, you probably are going to figure out, OK, if the police aren't going to be there when I make the phone call, uh, I'm going to have to defend myself. And, and so they're resorting to things like purchasing firearms because they think that self-defense is, is necessary and they want to keep themselves and their family safe. And, of course, this is, I would only imagine, having the opposite effect of what, what some on, on, on the left or, or the defund the police movement want because they certainly probably don't want these individuals to have uh, more guns. Um, as, as a supporter of the Second Amendment myself, I think it's their decision to make. But it is you, you raise an important issue, and, and it's in crime is uh, in many of our cities uh, out of control. Uh, it's a terrible situation we find ourselves in, and I think part of that is just to do with the rhetoric that we've been told now since uh, George Floyd in 2020. And some Democrats are backing away from that, recognizing that it's a losing issue uh, politically. But in other cases, uh, you, you still see them pushing forward with this agenda. Yeah. You know, when you think about the money that was raised uh, by BLM and as a result of George Floyd, you would think that George Floyd neighborhood where the crime occurred, where the death happened, would be one of the most beautiful, well-taken-care-of, well-managed, well-adorned area. And it's just a pit. Mm. And that, that, that's really sad. I, I think that so many of, of our, our you know, inner cities are, are like that. I mean, I, it's, it's not far from, from my office where you know, homelessness mm-hmm. uh, continues to be a problem in the nation's capital. I mean, in, in the city that has, for, since the 1960s, declared a war on poverty, I mean, literally, steps from the United States Capitol, they literally can, they can you know, look at the lawmakers in action mm-hmm. and, and almost this is right in front of them. And so it's uh, it's really sad. Uh, I, I, I recognize that we are confronting many problems in our country right now and uh, and it, we're not making it any easier with the with the skyrocketing inflation. I mean, it's difficult to to just get by because wages are not going up at nearly the rate as uh, the cost of consumer goods and gasoline and food and everything else. And so, you know, we're pushing people to the point where I think, uh, you know, they themselves are, are struggling to get by. And I, I, I recognize that that's, that's difficult uh, for many people. And too often, Bill, I think what they do is they resort uh, to crime. And, um, and, and we saw, you know, similar bad things happen in, in 2020 when I think COVID was really testing people in a way that they haven't before in their life. And, um, and and that, of course, led to a lot of violence as well. So we need to do everything we can. I think it's time to get back to some some basics. I also have, have talked to you on the show uh, about two important factors that I, I don't think involve government policymaking at all. I think one is just the importance of family formation. Amen. Having a mom and a dad in a loving environment at home, I think, can do so much uh, for, for young people. And 
And, you know, the more we can encourage that, uh, I think is a good thing. And then the role of churches and, uh, and, and civil society more broadly. But I think people uh, who, who uh, believe in religion and who, who faithfully practice uh, go to church on Sundays or, or other times during the week, uh, you know, probably find themselves in a, in a situation where they can hopefully avoid uh, some of these, uh, these, these, these more negative aspects of, of what we're seeing in society. Yeah. And, you know, Rob, it, I wear a lot of filters on my brain ever since I've gotten on the radio, because I even thinking about this remark I've made about the neighborhood that George Floyd died in. I mean, my desire would be that there would be, you know, great beauty and value added to that neighborhood but, you know, I'm a, basically a white guy talking about how I think they should spend their money. I mean, I have no business telling them how to spend their money, but they've raised close to a billion dollars. And I wonder what's happened. Are we using this to, to reset certain neighborhoods and, and to help? And where is the evidence? I'm just curious. Well, and that's a, part of the problem is we don't know, because uh, if you're talking about the money that was donated specifically to the Black Lives Matter organization, then there are serious questions, and there there are investigations underway currently because there are individuals who I think want to know what happened uh, to all of that that outpouring of support, financial support in 2020, and uh, we don't we we don't have those answers yet, and I think that's disturbing. Uh, now, whether people were pocketing that money or whether it went to political causes and and not into to communities, I'm not sure. But but one thing that you better better believe, I mean, whether we want to beautify neighborhoods or whether we want to invest it in, in community organizations, I mean, there are a variety of things I think you could do to improve uh, the quality of life for individuals who are in those circumstances. Certainly, we want safe neighborhoods, particularly for our kids mm-hmm. uh, to grow up in. And and so, Bill, I, I didn't I, I think your, your comment is is well put. Um, but uh, but rather than funneling it to the coffers of a, a national organization, uh, I'd much rather see it invested locally in, in communities like uh, like George Floyd's. Yeah, I, I'm with you, Rob. Um, as we talk about inflation, and I, it, it's always a difficult subject to bring up because it seems to be going in one direction, but when you look at food prices, is there anything we can do? Well, there, there are some things we can do. I mean, first of all, our, our politicians in Washington could, could stop spending so much money, which is driving the inflation crisis. And uh, even, even just this week, they returned from recess, and one of the first things that they're talking about doing is more COVID relief. I mean, mm-hmm. as if $6 trillion isn't enough. I mean, it's, it's, it's unprecedented in our, in our history, the amount of money that they've thrown at this, and they want to continue to put, spend more. And so I think we need to say stop. Uh, I think uh, your listeners can help them do that by, by speaking out and saying, hey, you know, representative in Washington or at your state capitol, uh, you know, let's, let's do things that are going to help reduce the burden on, on the American people right now, and, and spending more money is, is, not, is not one of them. There are some other things from a policy standpoint. I mean, the Fed could stop, uh, stop its easy money policies and, and things like that, which I think are probably harder to accomplish in the mm-hmm. short term given the, the people involved. But, uh, but, Bill, I think keeping the pressure on and just letting our political leaders know that, uh, you know, we're upset about this and uh, we're not going to take it anymore is, uh, is some, something that we can, yeah. we can certainly do on this and other issues. A listener jumped in and said the neighborhood is still in discussion about the block where George Floyd died. So that's, uh, that's good information. Rob, thanks so much for being on the show today. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you, Bill. You bet. Rob Bowie's been my guest. He is the executive editor at The Daily Signal. You can go to dailysignal.com to... Uh, learn more about Rob and his brilliant staff. We'll be right back.
I think I need a new laptop. I keep getting this notice that says your hard drive is full. Thinking <laughs> I gotta, I gotta dump some stuff. I got, but I have too much stuff on my computer. I can't get rid of it. But that's a good thing it's, for a show it, host it, to have too much stuff. That's, that's your true. prep. I'd rather Bill. have more than less. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That, Alex McFarland is my guest. He is uh, an apologist, an evangelist, um, an author, and he's an all-around uh, great guest and great friend. Alex, welcome. Well, it's great to be with you, Bill. And, you know, as your bumper music was coming in there for just a second, I thought it was an outtake. Maybe this is the director's cut of Sgt. Pepper. (laughs) It it, it sounded like maybe one of the great lost tracks from the Sgt. Pepper sessions. Thank you. I'll have to listen to it again and and, uh, think about that. That, I appreciate that, Alex. Now, now I know you, uh, like myself, are a music aficionado. I like it Uh, very much. Did you create your bumper music? A friend of mine uh, originated, made that original music for me, that piece. Well, it is outstanding. No, and, thanks. Um, yeah, it's really great. Are you, it's good to be with you, Bill. Are you familiar with the Christian group uh, Go Fish? That was the, uh, actually, the name of the band. Actually, no. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah, don't know them. That's okay. That's okay. So I was thinking about uh, some time we had talking about John Owen last time and some of the quotes I ran past you, and I, I had so much fun doing that. I thought, maybe I'll run a couple uh, by Alex today from uh, Spurgeon. Oh, man, I was just thinking about Spurgeon earlier today. <laughs> I really that does was. not surprise me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you know what Charles Spurgeon once said? This what? is priceless. He said, there have never been 15 minutes in my life that I did not sense the presence of Christ. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah. Do you know, I think deep down all of us could probably relate to that. I've even I've even had atheists tell me that they felt God was nearby mm. somehow. Mm-hmm. But uh, Spurgeon... Um, for those that don't know, Spurgeon, you know, was just this amazing, amazing man of God who preached. And uh, so are, are you a, a fan of Spurgeon? Huge fan. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. 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 He, um, he was a contemporary of D.L. Moody. I mean, in a way, would it be fair to say, just as D.L. Moody here in America was kind of the, the Billy Graham of the 19th century, Spurgeon, who um, he lived up until 1892, I mean, he was the most well-known Christian figure in Britain, wasn't he, during the 19th century? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Here are a couple of thoughts, Alex, by Charles Spurgeon. It is not how much we have, but how much we enjoy that makes happiness. Wow. Wow. And, and you know, um, that's really true because I, I've known people that were very, very, very blessed, but were discontent. Mm-hmm. And then I, I've known people that... Um, from our standard, maybe didn't have a lot, but were very joyful. Um, don't you think the determining factor is really gratitude? Yes, always. Yeah. Uh, how about, you know, the, oh, the, the Romans said gratitude was the mother of all other virtues. And and I, I really do think, as a Christian, you know, and certainly as a Christian American, I, I think we have so much for which to be grateful. And I try, if ever I catch myself lapsing into, you know, being... I don't know, discouraged or whatever. I 
I'll, I'll let say, Lord, forgive me, help me to be grateful because we've got so much, mm-hmm. so much for which to be grateful. And, you know, to springboard off of your Spurgeon quote, I think that, like you say, it's not how much we have, but how much we enjoy. Um, joy it begins with gratitude, really. Mm-hmm. I love this one, too. Anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but only empties today of its strength. Wow. That's why Spurgeon was called the Prince of Preachers. That's brilliant. Read that again, Bill. Anxiety. Anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but only empties today of its strength. That's true. Yeah. That's true. I love this one. Uh, Oh, go go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, You got another comment on this previous one, so go ahead. Well, you know, you and I have talked about this before. Um, time is a non-renewable resource. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I mean, when you think about it, I mean, you know, if if you lose money, I mean, that's unfortunate. But you you can get more money, mm-hmm. and even if you are you know uh, sick or something, I mean, you can. I've known a lot of people that rebounded even after debilitating physical situations. But you know, we worry, and we. You know, we we fret about the past, we worry about tomorrow, and and like Spurgeon said, it empties today of its strength. And the thing about it is, time is a non-renewable resource. That's why we we can't waste any of it, or we shouldn't waste any right, of it. Right. I love this line by Charles Spurgeon: "The Lord gets His best soldiers out of the highlands of affliction." Wow! Wow! <laughs> you know. Um, there were a lot of people recruited for um, different wars from, well, you know, Scotland, um, not only uh, Great Britain, but the colonies. A lot of the people during the Revolutionary War were the Scottish Highlanders. And so anyway, there was just this thought that mountain people were rugged and resilient, knew how to work, had a lot of courage, because mountaineers had often fought everything from bears to rattlesnakes and so from the highlands of affliction um that's that's pretty amazing isn't it have you ever noticed bill some of the people that grouse the most and are you know depressed and not grateful are the people that really haven't now i know this is not you know always true perhaps i'm generalizing and i ask forgiveness here but like some of the times, the people that have a lot of trust in the Lord have really gone through deep, deep valleys, crucibles of pain. And some of the people that are the least grateful and grouse and complain the most have not really had to go through that much. Mm-hmm. That's so true. I, I think of uh, Ernest uh, Shackleton's ad he ran in the newspaper to try to recruit men for his uh, endurance expedition. And to it said, Antarctica. Yeah, he said men, the ad said men wanted for hazardous journey. Low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in the event of success. And he got 5,000 applications for 28 spots. Wow, that, that's powerful, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. That, that's, that's really powerful. You know, we don't like hard times, but hard times make us better people than we were. Mm-hmm. How about this one, Alex, uh, by Charles Spurgeon? Of two evils, choose neither. Huh. Wow. <laughs> wow. That, that's good admonition, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was a great 
Christian leader named uh, Vance Havner, H-A-V-N-E-R. Bill, did you ever hear of Vance Havner? I have not. Dr. Vance Havner was an evangelist, and he died ne- like nearly 40 years ago. But he was the guy, like in the, in the early 40s, he was at a Florida Bible college doing a, weekend, a week of like preaching. And there was a Bible college student who sought an audience with Dr. Havner and uh, said, you know, I tried pastoring. I don't know if I really like that. And Vince Havner said, um, young man, you know what you ought to be? You ought to be an evangelist. I think God might could use you as an evangelist. And it was Billy Graham. But Vance Havner was, you know, folks, let me encourage you. Uh, he, he ought not be forgotten because he was a brilliant, brilliant guy and uh, influenced a lot of people like Adrian Rogers and D. James Kennedy also who have passed on, but Vance Havner, um, you know, he could turn a phrase, Bill. He would say things like this. Too many church services start at 11 o'clock sharp and end at 12 o'clock dull. (laughs) And um, he said, God called us to be fishers of men, not just keepers of the aquarium. Oh, wow. You know, strong. Yeah. But um, somebody said to him, said, uh, he was preaching. He said, hey, pray for me after this uh, conference. I'm going to take a vacation. And uh, a lady comes up and says, well, you know, the devil doesn't take a vacation. And Vince Hedner said, so who says I'm supposed to be like the devil? You know? <laughs> but anyway, um, haven't, Bill, let me just throw this in there and get back to Spurgeon. But C.S. Lewis once said that how sinners are so boringly similar and the saints are so vividly individual. Mm. Mm. And that's really, I mean, you think about it, folks. I mean, you think about everybody from, you know, C.S. Lewis to G.K. Chesterton to D.L. Moody to Charles Spurgeon to John Owen. The saints of God, far from being dull and boring and cookie cutter, the, the saints of God are fascinating people who very often have overcome so many things, but they... They found themselves in Jesus. And if, if you there was a book by A.N. Wilson. A.N. Wilson is a British historian, and he talks about Europe in the aftermath of Darwin in the mid-19th century and how everybody felt set free from this burden of God and judgment, and they partied and they drank and they had orgies. And he said by the end of the 19th century, many of the um, British elites were in asylums and were committing suicide. And they indulged themselves for several decades, you know, free of the constraints of the Christian God. And yet by the dawn of the 20th century, they were so depressed and so suicidal. And he said, they, they hurt, they ached, they longed for the God they no longer believed in. And it's, in Jesus, you don't lose your life. In Jesus, you find yourself, mm-hmm. really. So true. Speaking of that, Alex, here's another one from Charles Spurgeon. Conversion is a change of masters. Will we not do as much for our new master, the Lord Jesus, as we did once for our old tyrant lusts? Wow. Wow. The, the, the sinful nature mm-hmm. is a cruel, unrelenting taskmaster, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And we're just coming off our spring fundraiser. So this is a great Charles Spurgeon quote. He said, giving is true having. 
Wow. Say that again. Giving is true having. Wow. That, that's, that's true, isn't it? <laughs> and, uh, hey, I want to say how much I appreciate all those that pray for and support the Faith Radio Network. Uh, and thank you for investing so that um, people will hear the gospel and great programming like the Bill Arnold Show will go out there. And, uh, yeah, you, uh, you only keep that which you give away, really. Um, do you remember in Matthew 16, Jesus said, Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it and more in the world to come. Mm-hmm. Spurgeon said, too, Alex, we are in a wrong state of mind if we are not in a thankful state of mind. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Well, that's one of the battles daily is to be in a grateful, thankful spirit and attitude. Bill, where does the hierarchy of gratitude begin? For, for a believer, um, what, in your opinion, what are the, what's the order of things for which we're grateful? Well, I always start with the end in, in sight, which is um, my name is written in the book of life. My eternity is secure. I have um, eternity in, in my life today, so my heart is overflowing with joy. Amen. I start there, I mean, because everything else is daily activities. Yeah. But God's got me covered through all of eternity. So I don't know. What do you think? Well, of course, you know, salvation Mm -hmm. and to know that our sins are forgiven. And, I mean, me as an individual to know that by, by the death and resurrection of Jesus that I will not have to face God in judgment but will enter into the joy of the Lord. You know, and I'm not, I'm not trying to sound spiritual or sanctimonious, Bill, but just for life itself. I mean, you think about it. There's not a one of us that necessarily had to exist, and yet God gave us life. Good point. And, I mean, I don't, I don't completely know why, but somehow in the mind of Almighty God, in eternity past, in the counsel of God's will, he said there will be a man named Bill Arnold. And there would be an Alex McFarland. And, I mean, very often we're thankful for the, you know, ancillary things. Thank you, Lord, that I have a wife. Thank you, Lord, that I have a car. Thank you that I have indoor plumbing uh, and that I live in America. Mm-hmm. You know, warts on. But you know what? I mean, thank you, God, for life. I don't completely know why God made me, but, Lord, I, I want to be pleasing in your sight. And I, I think it's appropriate to acknowledge. Um, see, philosophers use the word ontology. Ontos, O-N-T-O-S, is the word for being, B-E-I-N-G, being or life. And the fact that God would give us life, and then even though we sinned and we're separated from the Lord, we have redemption, renewal, regeneration, salvation, you know, God didn't have to create us. His His world could have run fine without me mm-hmm. or any one of us, and yet God gave us life. Mm-hmm. Something to think about. Uh, indeed. Dr. Alex McFarland is my guest. You can go to alexmcfarland.com, learn more about him. We're going to continue basking in some great Charles Spurgeon quotes when we come back.
spending time with my friend, Dr. Alex McFarlane. We're kind of basking in some Charles Spurgeon thoughts and lines today. And another one I really like, uh, Alex, is uh, Spurgeon said, when we tell the story of our own conversion, I would have it done with great sorrow, remembering what we used to be, and with great joy and gratitude, remembering how little we deserve these things. Wow. Yeah. He had perspective, didn't he? Oh, did he ever? Yeah. Um, You know, when I was a young believer, I was at a church, and I heard a pastor say, you know, I'm not what I ought to be, but I'm not what I used to be, and praise God, I'm not yet what I'm going to be. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I thank God that he saved me from my sins, but he saved me from Alex, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I think about... Bill, all the stuff I wanted for myself when I was uh, an unsaved punk. And um, I'm so glad Jesus loved me so much that he gently and sometimes decisively had to pull me away from Alex. Mm, (laughs) Sounds like Spurgeon understood a similar sentiment. Yeah. And, you know, Spurgeon can take ideas out of God's Word and, and just put them in such nice, succinct little sentences. He said that a daily portion is really all we need. We do not need tomorrow's supply, for that day has not yet dawned, and it needs, and its needs are still unborn. Mm. Wow. You know, I, I think it's hard for people to grasp what a, an international celebrity he was in the 19th century. And um, they, uh, Spurgeon first read, this will blow your mind, first read Pilgrim's Progress at age six. Over the course of his life, probably read it a hundred times. He, um, on, on more than one occasion, preached to 20,000 people plus with no microphone, of course. But you know what they did at one point in his London tabernacle? They said that he had to admonish people to please attend only every other Sunday so enough people could have a seat. Wow. <laughs> I mean, imagine that. Now, we could have that kind of revival again. Bill, am I right? Does the same Savior that Spurgeon knew and preached, is that still the Lord of our churches today? Yes. Same God that sent revival to England, and I mean, literally an uneducated, he really had no formal education. He owned over 12,000 books. A thousand of Spurgeon's books were pre-1700 taught himself multiple languages. I mean, he almost single-handedly brought Britain to Jesus and a biblical worldview. Mm-hmm. Isn't that the same God that we serve and preach and know today? Yes. Yes. May God grant yeah. that our nation has revival. I love this one, Alex. Charles Spurgeon said, In prayer, we stand where angels bow with veiled faces. There, even there, the cherubim and seraphim adore before that same throne to which our prayers ascend. And shall wow. we come there with stunted requests and narrow, contracted faith? Wow. That's powerful. <laughs> That's powerful. Hey, you remember in First uh, Peter chapter 1, speaking about salvation. And by the way, I'm going to be teaching First Peter at the Cove, the Billy Graham Training nice. Center, the Cove this summer. July 8th through 10, if you'd like to come. We always have, they, they can accommodate about 300 people. We're a little over two-thirds of the way full. July 8th through 10, their website is thecove.org. 
but um, I'm teaching First Peter. But in First Peter chapter one, verses eleven and twelve, it's talking about um, salvation, and the Spirit of the Lord points us to the sufferings of the Messiah. And verse twelve says, "Such things the angels desired to look into." And now the New Testament tells us, you know, Jesus is our high priest touched with all the infirmities that we feel yet without sin. Therefore, we come boldly to the throne of grace and we shall obtain mercy. But the Spurgeon quote you read, you know, the angels bow, I think, in awe of God. And we just sometimes we take it for granted and I don't know, imagine this, because that First Peter 1, 12, such things, the things of salvation, the angels desire to look into. Sometimes we Christians, we're kind of like non-committal, very apathetic about the fact that the Lord has called our name, we've been redeemed. And I wonder, Bill, if the angels are not back in the shadows thinking, oh my goodness, don't they realize how blessed they are to have been redeemed? I mean, do they not realize how close they came to dying, lost forever in hell, mm. and yet the love of Jesus has been shed abroad in their heart? And, um, hey, you know, something has been said that, uh, that the one thing that we can only do this side of heaven, and we can't do it in heaven, and that's evangelize. And, you know, when I hear that, like the Spurgeon quote you just read, and I think about what the Word of God tells us about our our privileged standing as born-again believers. Bill, why wouldn't we face each day with joy? Why wouldn't we tell others about our Savior? And why wouldn't we, every day we're in the land of the living, shine out brightly for Christ? Mm-hmm. And because there's so much brokenness and difficulty in the world, there's so many people I hear that are in the midst of a struggle I love this quote from Spurgeon. He said, many men owe the grandeur of their lives to the tremendous, to their tremendous difficulties. Wow. And that's where God refines our faith. That's where he shapes us into the men and women that he wants us to be. As much as we don't like it, it's where the great work is done. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, You know, I read somebody once said, you know, that thing that uh, you so desire to be out from under may be the thing that takes you to where you really want to be. You know, it's like uh, friction is um, what makes the, the airplane wing lift. It makes the boat float. Um, uh, do you remember Dennis Waitley? Oh, I sure. Think he, he was, what, what was he, an NBA coach, wasn't he? Um, I think he was, yeah. But he, he said... He said, failure is fertilizer. It stinks for sure, but it makes things grow. He <laughs> said, "He said everything I've learned about coaching and life came about through failures. And, uh, and, and that's, that's really true. I mean, um, and, and see, that's one of the beautiful things about being a Christian is, you know, Joel 2.25 says, God restores the years the, the locust has eaten. And if we will let him... You know, our our failures can really become victories because we learn more things about trusting God, more things about God's faithfulness. Billy Graham, I got to tell you this, and I believe this was in that book, uh, Peace with God. Um, it, Billy Graham's first two books back in the 50s, I've got them both. One is called The Secret of Happiness. 
and the other is called Peace with God, and I think this might have been in The Secret of Happiness. But anyway, Billy Graham went to Scotland, and they're at some restaurant. They're traveling. He's preaching. This is, you know, early, early in his ministry. And um, so there was a waitress carrying a tray, and somebody was speaking and gesturing, and it knocked this tray of food off. And anyway, this glass of tea on a beautiful white wall, the wall was painted white, this glass of tea made this brown splotch. And everybody was like, oh, no, you know, that ugly brown stain on the wall now. But quickly, somebody got up and pulled out a pen, and it was this master artist. And he began to draw all around it. And it was a stag up on a mountaintop, uh, some kind of elk or deer or something with horns and his head thrown back, kind of howling. And it was this, the brown stain became this beautiful masterpiece. And Billy Graham said, um, the restaurant owner runs out and goes, please, nobody erase that. That that is the jewel of my restaurant now, this piece of art on the wall. But Billy Graham said the accident and the ugly stain became a thing of beauty when the master took over. Oh, that's beautiful. Alex, thank you so much. We're a little out of time, but I look forward to our next time on the air. Thank you to so God much, my be friend. The glory. Thank Amen. you, Bill. Dr. Alex McFarland has been my guest. You can go to alexmcfarland.com. We'll be back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.